hear me? Everyone feel like they can't hear me? Okay, well, let's pray, and uh, maybe as I pray, it'll adjust itself. Father, we thank you that there is no area of our lives that is beyond you. There's nothing about us that you're not interested in, and that includes our worries and our concerns and our fears. And as we talk about this tonight, we realize it's probably a significant issue in many of our lives, and so we pray that you will help us not to be uh, deflated or uh, not to have our hope taken away, but I pray that you will fill us with hope in you, not in ourselves, but in you and what you can do in our lives. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This afternoon we're thinking about fear and anxiety. It's fear and anxiety because we're dealing with something that has a whole lot of different names in the English language. Uneasy, worried, nervous, tense, uptight, scared, afraid, panicked, terrified, petrified, distressed, helpless, overwhelmed, insecure. We have a whole cluster of words describing roughly the same emotional state. Now, to some degree, the different words might indicate more or less severe forms of this state. We might decide that fear is a bit stronger than anxiety, but they're certainly in the same category. And the fact that we have so many words for fear and anxiety tells us, I think, this is a very significant issue for us. It's something we have to describe a lot because we experience it a lot. Just the other week, I read an article that said, anxiety is a condition that defines our age. And maybe not just our age. Maybe it defines every age since the Garden of Eden. You remember immediately after Adam sinned, we're told in Genesis chapter 3, the Lord called to the man, where are you? And Adam replied, I was afraid, so I hid. Maybe ever since humanity rebelled against God, fear and anxiety have defined our existence. But we need to get some handle on what we're talking about. What is Fear, or you can substitute whichever other word you prefer for it, worry, panic, insecurity. Well, we could think about the physical symptoms. Physically, strong fear tends to cause shortness of breath, increased heart rate, clammy palms, tensed muscles, and racing thoughts. Nervous twitches in the face or a constant fidgeting of hands or legs are not uncommon too. Milder, more baseline fear might show up as digestive issues. Ulcers and irritable bowel syndrome can both result from long-term anxiety. Headaches, fatigue. Basically, given enough time, fear can gnaw in pretty much any part of your body. It's helpful to be aware of that. But those are symptoms of fear and anxiety. They don't really help us with grasping what fear is. So here's our basic definition. Fears are emotions rooted in future-orientated thinking that incorporate themes of threat and vulnerability. In other words, we're not afraid of what has happened. 
We might have other emotions about that, like regret or guilt or anger. But fear and anxiety are about what might happen or what we feel sure will happen. And the reason we fear something is because we feel threatened or vulnerable in the face of it. If I fear walking down a dark alley late at night, it's because of what might jump out at me. Sometimes, though, we don't even know what's making us feel afraid or anxious. That can be even worse when we can't pinpoint what the threat is. We just feel uneasy or panicked. But the first aspect of fear is that it is future-oriented. We might fear something in the next year or in the next 10 seconds, but it's always something in the future, something ahead of us. The second aspect of fear is this. Fear, whether mild, uneasiness, or abject terror, has a simple message. Something you value is under threat. Something bad might happen to something you care about. The future holds potential for loss. So the reason you and I feel fear is because something we value is under threat. So fear then tells us what we value. Whether it's our safety, our health, our family, our wealth, our comfort, our exam results, our car, whatever it is we get anxious about, that is what we value. And often the things that we value are valuable things. We ought to value them. It's not always wrong to value something. So let's think about What's good and bad about fear and anxiety? Let's start with what's good. Throughout this series, we've seen that our emotions are part of what it means to be made in God's image. So they are not bad in and of themselves. If we were emotionless, we would be less than human. And that applies to fear and anxiety as well. In 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul speaks about the daily pressure that he feels because of his anxiety for all the churches. We said a moment ago, our fears and anxieties show what we value most. They point to what we treasure. And what we find with Paul is, he values the church enough to get anxious about its welfare. And that is a good thing, surely. The church is the bride of Christ, It would not be commendable if Paul was careless about something that God values so highly. Paul's anxiety is a sign that he values what God values in this case. Here's another example from Paul's letter this time to the Philippians. He's speaking about a very particular situation which we'll think about or he'll explain it. He says, I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad... And I may have less anxiety. So there's a whole lot of anxiety going on there. The Philippian Christians are anxious 
because they had their friend Epaphroditus is seriously ill. Epaphroditus is distressed because they're anxious about him. And Paul, who was anxious while Epaphroditus was ill, is now anxious for the Philippians to see their dear friend, so they stop being anxious about him. And none of that is bad. Matthew Elliott says, Our anxiety over the state of those we love shows how we love them. Their health issues and tragedies mean something to us. And that's a good thing. He goes on to say, God also intended for fear to play a protective role in our lives. It's good that we fear rattlesnakes. We teach children to fear running into busy streets. God wants us to fear the consequences of doing wrong. The fear of God keeps us from harm. So fear can keep us out of trouble. It can make us alert and focus when we need to be so we don't make foolish, lazy mistakes. It can also move us to action to protect those we love. Genuinely good things can come from fear and anxiety. But some of the time, maybe even most of the time, our fears do not produce good things. One reason for that is often the things you and I value most are not what God values most. Instead of valuing the glory of God and the good of his people, don't we tend to value our own reputation, our comfort, our possessions, Fear does not produce good things when you and I value the wrong things. And fear does not produce good things when we don't take our fear to God. Keeping fear and anxiety to ourselves will never produce anything good. Listen to Paul's advice about this. In Philippians chapter 2, we've just listened to him acknowledge his anxiety That's the context for what we then read in Philippians chapter 4, where Paul says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. We've just seen in Paul's case, his anxiety came from valuing a very good thing, the church. In cases like that, then the problem isn't the anxiety itself, it's what we do with it. Do we bow to it? Do we allow it to overwhelm us? Or do we bring the source of our anxiety to God, presenting it to Him? Often, in fact, aren't we slow to do that? Martin Luther can always be counted on to say striking things. And he said, when you and I feel anxious, we should pray and let God worry. But often we choose to do the worrying all by ourselves. There is, though, a very good reason we're to present these things to God. We've noticed fear and anxiety are always orientated to the future. They're about what might happen or what we are sure is going to happen. This person I love might die. And I might not be able to cope with their death. Or I might totally mess up this job interview or this exam. Whatever it is, it's always something out ahead of us. 
even if it's just how we're going to get through the next hour. But the future is God's time. He owns that time that's in front of us. He controls it. We can't, but he does. And so we have to stop trying to control it ourselves. Our fear and anxiety go wrong when we don't present them to God. And when we hesitate to pray and let God worry, here's what can happen to us. Here's what it looks like when fear and anxiety go wrong. Our horizon begins to get smaller. Our lifestyle can become increasingly restrictive or repetitive as we constantly seek control and reassurance. Because new things are new, they're more worrying to us. So we try to avoid them. We stick to what we know very well. We do our best to steer clear of new people and new experiences, and our worlds get smaller. Another thing that can happen when we hesitate to pray and let God worry is our anxieties grow and even become paralyzing to us. Our anxiety has a tendency towards underestimating our ability to cope and overestimating the likely danger. As we worry, the thoughts repeatedly go round in our heads. Yet rather than trying to deal with, helping to deal with the issue, our ruminations reduce our ability to do anything constructive. We focus on the fear, and the more attention we give it, the bigger and more overwhelming it gets. I'll give you a silly example. I have this kind of experience every time I go to a water park. Whether it's jumping off a high diving board or going down a water slide, if there's a queue, when I'm going to have to stand around contemplating how high the drop is or how steep it is, I just get more and more terrified. Physically, I can actually feel it. I go cold. It's not so bad, though, if I can go straight to the top and just jump without time to dwell on what's coming. Although what I most prefer is to sit on a bench at the bottom and watch everybody else. I suppose that's allowing anxiety to make my world smaller. It's a silly example, but I think it applies to most of our fears, even the more serious ones. The more time you and I spend focusing on them, the bigger they get. Again, none of that means that fear and concern are bad things in themselves. We've seen God gave us these emotions to help us avoid danger and stay safe. Help others stay safe. But Winston Smith shows how it can go wrong. He says, safety is grit until you cling so tightly to it that you're no longer willing to step out of your zone of perceived refuge, even to love others or obey God. Good desires for responsibly shaping our environment or obtaining confident clarity about the outcome of our choices easily become ugly demands for a total control and absolute certainty we creatures were never meant to have. Whether you are a business executive organizing deals or a three-year-old organizing dolls, 
Bringing order and fruitfulness to your world is good. The problem is not with self-protection or the desire to bring order and predictability to the world around us. But in this fractured life, you will never be completely safe, fully in control, or 100% certain of what is coming next. You are never meant to be. Instead, dangers, dependence, and uncertainties are signposts that point us not to a strategy, but to a person, the one whose control and utterly certain character are our only real safety. That's why the Apostle Peter says, cast all your anxiety on him, on God, because he cares for you. And this God who cares for us controls our future with perfect wisdom and infinite power. Last year, we hosted a performance of The Hiding Place here at the church. And Catherine Haddow points to an example from that story which helps us. She says, Corrie ten Boom, in her book, The Hiding Place, speaks of a time when, as a young girl, she was very anxious and fearful about death. But her very wise father told her this story. Corrie, when you and I go to Amsterdam, when do I give you your train ticket? I sniffed a few times, considering this. Why, just before we get on the train. Exactly. And our wise Father in heaven knows when we're going to need things too. Don't run out ahead of him, Corey. When the time comes that some of us will have to die, you will look into your heart and find the strength you need just in time. And Catherine Haddow goes on to say, this wonderfully depicts what God does. He will give us the grace we need to cope with a difficult situation exactly when we need it and not a moment too soon. Instead of looking inwards to ourselves to control our lives, we must look upwards to the grace of Jesus. If we don't, instead of walking forward as Christians on the narrow path, our difficult emotions will lead us to get trapped in a spiral whereby we go round and round in circles and sometimes even go backwards. Maybe your response to all this is to say, okay, I agree with you. But it's easier said than done. And of course that's true. If it was easy for you and me to deal with our worries, worry would never be a problem for us. But often it is a problem. As I quoted earlier, anxiety is a condition that defines our age. So let's think about engaging our fears and anxieties. First, identify them. Anxiety has more power when it's just a general feeling of unease or threat. It's very helpful if you and I can put our finger on what's producing this anxiety. Is it a financial burden? We don't think we'll be able to pay our bills. Is that what it is? Are you constantly checking your bank balance? Is it some other responsibility that we don't think we're up to? I have a recurring dream on Saturday nights that it's 10.45 on a Sunday morning and I cannot get my sermon notes organized. What am I supposed to be saying? 
That dream tells you what I get anxious about. Are you afraid that you can't keep your loved ones safe? Are you constantly telling them to be careful, checking on them? Is it fear about your own health? Do you find yourself obsessing about every cough and every ache? Are you afraid of looking stupid in front of other people? Is there a specific person you get nervous around? Alistair Grove says, perhaps the simplest telltale sign of fear in your life is a tendency to ask what if questions. What if we don't have enough money to cover this or that? What if I get there and they've already left? What if no one likes my project? What if I'm not ready when they call on me? So ask yourself, do you have a particular what if question that keeps coming back? That might help you identify a particular source of anxiety. Is there a particular time or place where you tend to experience anxiety? And then how does it manifest itself? What are the symptoms? Earlier we listed some of the physical ways that fear manifests itself. Are there particular situations or particular people that bring on those kind of symptoms for you? It might take a bit of thought but it's worth making the effort to try and identify our fears and worries. Then, how are you dealing with them? Now, at this point, we're not asking how should you deal with them. This is about how do you currently deal with them. Do you avoid the situations or the people you've identified as causes of anxiety? Or if you're anxious about someone's safety, do you devote yourself to protecting them? Making sure they're perfectly safe all the time? If it's about money, do you find yourself just working harder and harder? Trying to solve the anxiety that way? Do you find that you self-medicate with alcohol or food? I knew an anxious minister's wife who kept a bottle of whiskey in the cupboard to try and keep her nerves under control. Do you try and deal with anxiety by distracting yourself with entertainment? The word amusement literally means to not think. To muse is to think. Put an ah in front of it, it means not thinking. Is that your habit? to try to fill your downtime with distractions. Maybe endless series on Netflix so that you don't have to face what it is you're afraid of. Do you get irritable and angry taking your anxiety out on the people around you? Do you just give in to the anxiety and let it immobilize you, isolating yourself more and more, doing less and less? Of course, the responses that I've just listed there are all negative. Avoiding people or situations doesn't actually deal with anything. Neither does distracting yourself. And making yourself into somebody's guardian angel just increases your anxiety because you never can protect someone perfectly. 
workaholism or depending on alcohol create all sorts of other problems. But it could be you're not trying to deal with your anxieties in any of those ways. Maybe your response is a model of Christian maturity. So what does that look like? What is a wise strategy for us? And we're not talking about a magic formula. This strategy will not eradicate every anxiety from your life. It will not transform you and me into someone who skips merrily through your days with never a care in the world. There is no magic formula that can achieve that for us. This is a game plan for us. It's an approach for us to take as we face life's concerns. I mentioned four ingredients of a wise strategy. First, go to your Father. This is not just a call to pray and read your Bible. Look at the words on the screen. Go to your Father. The God who created the universe, the God who minute by minute upholds every atom in the universe is your Father. Coming to grips with that reality will be the single greatest help with our fears and anxieties. The Bible does not just call us to approach God with our worries. It invites us to bring our worries to our Father in heaven. So, go to your Father. Talk to Him. Your Father cares about the things you worry about. Your Father knows what you need. Cast your cares on Him because He cares for you. As part of doing this, we will want to soak ourselves in what our Father says to us in our cares and our worries. In other words, we will want to find specific passages of Scripture that speak to this issue. And we will want to make those passages our own, coming back to them again and again. Passages like Psalm 23, Psalm 121, or the end of Romans 8 that we read together this morning. And we'll finish this afternoon by looking at one passage you might want to take hold of. But search the Bible for your own. And then whichever passage or passages you choose, dwell on them when you're anxious. It doesn't always have to be something new that you read. Come back to those precious passages. And read them as you go to your Father in prayer. They are His words to you. And then second, take simple physical steps. Here's the kind of thing I mean, particularly when we feel overwhelmed with anxiety. It's really simple, but we're physical beings, so it's important. Get your breathing under control. Taking deep, measured, slow breaths and exhaling slowly is a common sense way to preach the truth of safety in Christ to a body quivering with dread. Some exercise wouldn't be a bad idea either. Exercise is the most underused anti-anxiety medication. 
In one of our previous talks in this, I quoted Alistair Groves as saying, the heavens declare the glory of God and we need to listen. So just getting outside and noticing what our Father has created, that can help our anxiety. And maybe, yes, strenuous exercise isn't a realistic option for all of us, but it should still be possible for us to get outside. And if we're Christians, something else is going on when we take little steps to rest from our worry. When you stop checking email in the evening, or even take five minutes to breathe or go for a walk, you implicitly entrust yourself and the things you care about into God's hands. On the other hand, if you and I refuse to rest in these simple ways, we're actually refusing to entrust God with ourselves and the things we care about. We're saying that we can fix things if we just try a bit harder. We can keep things safe if we would just obsess about them a bit more. A third ingredient of a wise strategy is to face your fear. Having just said we need to stop obsessing about it, it's equally true, though, that a policy of avoiding what we fear is no solution either. There is enormous value in turning toward rather than fleeing from the things we dread. This turning to must not be an exercise in self-trust. But when we engage our fears with God, we can have enormous confidence that God will strengthen and grow us. So if, if it's a particular responsibility that makes you anxious, if it's a place or a person, then face those things with God. And I need to be really, really clear, I'm not talking about foolish or sinful things. If the responsibility involves sin, if the place is genuinely hazardous, if it involves powerful temptation, if the person is physically abusive, if they're likely to harm you in other ways, I'm not suggesting we force ourselves into situations of genuine harm. But often the people in the situations we fear are not like that. Someone has said fear is a notorious exaggerator. Fear is a notorious false prophet of doom. Those are the kind of fears we need to face. Fear of an uncomfortable conversation. Fear of a new situation or a new venture. Fear of what might possibly happen to our health or to the safety of someone we love if we just take our eyes off them. Go to your father, take simple physical steps, face your fear, and then fourth, give. And I don't necessarily mean give money, although that might be part of it. Dave Paulison explains this in a, in a wider way. In the darkest hole, when life is toughest, there's always some way to give yourself away. There's always something to give yourself to. 
Give yourself to today's trouble. Leave tomorrow's uncertainties to your Father. We can become totally wrapped up in our worries and how we feel about them, but helping someone else in their trouble, even in a simple way, or doing a simple task that needs to be done, that can help us fixate a bit less on our concerns about tomorrow. One of the characteristics of a really worried person is that they don't consider other people. Unless, of course, it's other people they happen to be deeply worried about. Helping someone else can put our own concerns in a bit of perspective for us. So then to finish, let's look at one passage to live with. It's Luke chapter 12, verses 22 to 34, if you have a Bible. Or if you can uh, get one, it might be helpful just to look at this. Earlier I suggested that we seek out passages and uh, make them our own, and this is one very good candidate for that kind of passage. If you're looking for it in the green Church Bibles, it's page 1045. I'm not sure about the larger print, but it's Luke chapter 12, verse 22. So let's just over a few brief moments just walk through this. But before we read it, it's really important to be aware the people Jesus is talking to had a lot less than we do. With very few exceptions, the people listening to Jesus lived their lives day to day. They were dependent on what they could catch in their fishing net that day. They had no health care. They had no antibiotics. A drought could kill them. Their livelihood was that fragile. So in those terms, they had at least as much to be worried about as you and I do. Maybe even more to be worried about. So we need to know this passage is not for people who are insulated in any way from sources of concern. This does not presuppose some ideal situation. This passage is for people with lots of very good reasons to be anxious and afraid. This is for people who live with uncertainty and plenty of things they cannot control like us. But in verse 22, Jesus invites them and he invites us not to worry about our daily needs. Have a look at it. Jesus said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. Notice Jesus does not say, do nothing about your daily needs. He says, don't worry about them. So Jesus is not ruling out fishing for food or buying new clothes. He says, don't be anxious about what you'll catch in your net. Don't be anxious about what brand of trainers you can afford. Then in verse 23, he gives a reason not to worry. For life is more than food and the body more than clothes. David Powelson has some helpful comments on this passage, and he says about these verses, 
There is so much more to who you are than what you have or don't have. If your life isn't made by having money, then your life can't be unmade by the lack of it. What matters a lot more is, whom do you fear? And what do you do with Jesus? Those are matters of life and death. And if those questions are taken care of for you and me, if we fear the Lord, if we're trusting in Jesus, then our other worries are really very secondary things. So each of us, we can take our own personal worry list, we can work our way down the list, and for each item on that list, we can apply Jesus' words to it. Your life is more than fill in the blank, health, good cartilage in your knees, smooth skin, lots of friends, being married, getting picked for the team, having a healthy bank account. In verse 24, Jesus points out, God even cares about creatures that don't seem worth his time. And we know we matter much more to him so we can be sure he'll give greater care to us. Look at that in verse 24. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. God feeds a bird. Even one of the Old Testament's unclean animals. A bird that lives on roadkill and theft. People matter a lot more to God. That's a promise you can take home. Verse 25. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Paulison says, worries act like they might be able to control the uncontrollable. Central to worry is the illusion that we can control things. If only I could get my retirement right, I could control the future. If I could get my diet and medicine right, I wouldn't get cancer. If I could figure out the right child-rearing technique, I could guarantee how my kids turn out. Worry assumes the possibility of control over the uncontrollable. The illusion of control lurks inside your anxiety. Anxiety and control are two sides of one coin. When we can't control something, we worry about it. But here Jesus says to us, what does worry achieve, actually? Worry achieves nothing. It accomplishes Nothing. It doesn't make our life so much as one hour longer, no matter how hard we work. It doesn't move us one inch forward in our life. Verse 27. Consider how the wild flowers grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, 
how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? If God makes mere wildflowers so glorious that their beauty outdazzles Solomon, how much more will you outdazzle the lilies, O you of little faith? This promise is far more than God will take care of you. This is God will clothe you in nothing less than his radiant glory. So, why do you worry about the clothes we wear? I'll dress you in my own glory. Why do you worry about your health? I'll raise you from the dead to eternal life. Why do you worry about a few quid? I'll give you the whole earth as your inheritance. Why do you worry when someone doesn't like you? I'll make you live in the kingdom of my love. Verse 29. And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things. And your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom and these things will be given to you as well. Is Jesus saying we shouldn't work? Is he saying we shouldn't save? We shouldn't budget for groceries? Again, I think Paulson's comments are helpful. Of course, we should have jobs and make money if we can. But Jesus warns against making it your life objective. Yes, we do have economic needs. Jesus says, I promise you, your father knows you need these things. You do need a job. It's not wrong to provide for retirement, to pay your mortgage and bills, to own a car. Your father knows you need these. But what are you going to be about? Is your life about money? Everyone else's life is. But what everyone in the world is obsessed with, God makes a distant second. He'll give you what you need to live on if you need him in order to live. This is about what you and I set our heart on. It's about what we run after. If we set our heart on God himself and if we seek his kingdom, the other details of our lives are going to fall into their proper place. We will be able to work without work consuming us. We'll be able to love our family without idolizing our family. We'll be able to care for our health without obsessing about our health. We'll be able to be friendly without living for other people's praise and acceptance. Verse 32 brings us back to a truth we noticed earlier. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. The God we're talking about is our Father. We matter to him and he will care for us. Jesus says we are God's little flock. It's the only place in the Bible where that phrase little flock is used. It's a vivid picture of a flock of sheep small enough that the shepherd knows all their names. 
their personalities, and what each one faces. Jesus makes sure we know that God is not reluctant to love us. Do not worry, because your Father has gladly chosen to give you the kingdom. Our Bibles say he has been pleased to give it to us. We didn't have to prize it out of his hands. It is his pleasure to give us all that he has, his kingdom. And so because you and I are heirs to so much, because our Father has given us his kingdom, because everything he has is ours, you and I can be people then who give freely of ourselves and our resources rather than being desperate to get and keep and hold on to things. Verse 33. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will never fail where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. A worrier is storing treasure in the wrong place. If what you most value can be taken away or destroyed, then you set yourself up for anxiety. Whether it be money, health, a particular friendship, the dream of marriage, success in sports or business, or how your children turn out, you're building your house on sand. Even if you feel good or everything's going your way, you're building your house on sand. Your treasure is vulnerable. And whenever what is precious to you is threatened, you will be gripped with fear. But Jesus is calling us to live differently. Because you have been given a sure thing, because there's really nothing to worry about, then give. It is his pleasure to give to you so you can give too. You can give yourself away. You can use your gifts. Your life can be about give. There's a world to reach out to and people to love and jobs to be done. And we can give ourselves to that purpose. Your father knows what you need. He promises to provide for you as needed. But get first things first. Live for the kingdom. It will take you and me a lifetime to get the truths of that passage firmly in our hearts. We can never just flick a switch and be like this. But I encourage you to make a start. And by God's grace, all of us will begin to move in the direction of the life that's described in this passage. By God's grace, all of us can learn to cast all our anxiety on him because he cares for us. That's all I have planned to say. I don't know if it raises any questions for you, though.